These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings, good sunny morning to you. Let's have a cup of coffee together. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast, the show in which I find a subject I'd like to know more about and then force that knowledge onto you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 227. There once was a man who became the king of Western swing. He was a fiddle player with his own band who starred in movies, had his own radio and television show, and a beautiful young wife and three children. He also had a dark side. He drank and was known to have angry outbursts. In 1961, his demons got the best of him, and it resulted in tragedy. It was murder. Today I bring you the dark tale of a fiddle player named Spade Cooley. A little warning before I get started. Today's show is a little dark. It involves a gruesome murder, and uh, I talk about it in a bit of detail, so uh, you're warned, all right? This story is about a man named Spade Cooley. Actually, his name was Donald Clyde Cooley. Spade was his professional name. Spade was an American Western swing musician big band leader, actor, and television personality who began in the early 40s and his career lasted until 1961. That was the year he murdered his wife. Cooley was born on December 17, 1910 in Grand, Oklahoma to an extremely poor family. By the time he was four, he was playing the fiddle and by the age of seven, he was taking lessons. He was part Cherokee, And at the time, Native American children were being taken away from their families to prevent them from learning their Native American customs, languages, and religions. They were to be assimilated into the Euro-American culture. These schools were called American Indian boarding schools, which were started by Christian missionaries with the approval of the federal government. Anyway, Cooley was sent to one of those. And it was while at the school that he began taking music lessons, playing the cello, and he took it very seriously. He practiced every day. He also began playing poker and was given the nickname Spade after drawing three consecutive hands, all with spades, one even being a royal flush. His mother once said of the child, he was uncontrollable. So it must have been no surprise that At the age of 17, he ran off with Anne, who is listed as a full-blooded Eskimo Indian, though I have to think that term isn't politically correct these days. The two were married and had a son, and the three of them settled in California. When he was 22 years old, he was living on a farm in Modesto, California, but rather than working the farm, he made his money playing the fiddle. Over the years, he was in various bands and eventually formed his own group, When World War II began, Southern California became the center for the defense industry, and his band became very popular. They played the Venice Pier Ballroom to thousands over their 18-month engagement. 
After that and several lineup changes, Cooley's band ended up at the Riverside Rancho. He added an accordion and harp player to give them a very unique sound, and eventually they landed a record contract. There might have been many musicians in the group, but Spade Cooley was definitely in charge. He was a competent arranger, and with two other writers in the band, they created brilliant, complex scores, and every member of the band were able to play intense, improvised jazz. But Cooley's domineering ways and bad temper often rubbed his band members the wrong way. At one time, many of his crew left to play with Tex Williams, who had left to form his own group, and Cooley was left to quickly rebuild his. Yet he continued to flourish. His record, Shame on You, was number one on the country charts for two months. It was the first of an unbroken string of top ten singles, including Detour and You Can't Break My Heart. By 1948, Cooley and his band were on television with the Spade Cooley Show, a variety show broadcasted from the Venice Pier Ballroom. The show was a huge hit in California, winning local Emmys in 1952 and 1953. Folks like Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore, Jerry Lewis, and Frankie Lane all appeared as guests. It was estimated that 75% of the TV sets in L.A. tuned in to watch Cooley every Saturday night. Now, legend has it that Cooley had a bit of an alcohol problem. He was one of those type of people who would become angry and abusive when the drink got the best of him, and he often took it out on his band members. And, allegedly, he wasn't very faithful to his wife. Bobby Bennett, Cooley's former business manager, would later claim that he was a womanizing cheat and that she had to pay off ten women for Cooley to have abortions. A young girl named Ella Mae Evans, who was 13 years younger than Cooley, had apparently been hired to play clarinet for a gig. Evans had come to California from a farm in Missouri. When Cooley's star female singer left, he encouraged Ella Mae to audition. Bobby Bennett told Cooley that she had no voice, but it was Cooley's band and his vote was all that mattered, so he hired the petite and pretty, five-foot, four-inch, barely 100 pounds youthful woman to be his female singer. And she became very popular. Often advertisements for the band would highlight her name, saying, featuring Ella Mae Evans. She, of course, caught the romantic eye of Cooley, and soon he was divorced from his wife. In 1945, the two were married. The couple would have two children, a daughter, Melody, born in 1946, and a son, Donald, born in 1948. Most likely, Cooley didn't stop his romantic ways with other ladies during this time. He sampled scores of fans, girl singers, female musicians, and various wannabe starlets looking for a leg up in Hollywood. He also had a dream to start his own amusement park, similar to Disneyland, which was to be called Spade Cooley's Water Wonderland. It was to be an 80-acre park with a lake for boat racing, fishing, shops, a big swimming pool, and a set for television production. On the land he had purchased, he built a home for his family, a ranch. But by this time, things took a downward turn for the musician. His TV and radio shows had been canceled, his recording contracts ended, and the cost of the Wonderland really put a strain on his finances. And all this time, his drinking got worse. 
He began to get depressed and paranoid and worried that Ella May was having affairs. She was living in prison like a princess in the couple's ranch, forced to give up her career. Allegedly, she was often beaten by Cooley in a drunken rage as he demanded that she admit all the affairs that she was having. He virtually kept her a prisoner, Bobby Bennett once said. He was very jealous of her. Of course, he was with other women, two or three every night. Now, I'm not sure if she was really having affairs or not. Some versions of this tale I've read made it sound like it was all in Cooley's head. Others say that she admitted having sexual relationships on several occasions. And it's also been pointed out that she may have admitted these affairs only after physical torture. So I don't think anybody knows if it's true or not. In early 1961, Ella May was in the hospital after a hysterectomy. She told doctors more than once how she feared her husband. She hired an attorney to begin divorce proceedings. The attorney heard stories of how Cooley beat her often, and the physical abuse was growing worse. She said she feared for her life. She worried that if she attempted to leave him, he would kill her and might do the same to the children if she attempted to take them with her. Two of LMA's friends, Bud Davenport and Luther Jackson, began to invest money for her in secret so she would have something after the divorce, as she planned to only ask for her freedom and nothing else. At one point while in the hospital, a nurse informed Ella that Cooley was on his way. She became hysterical and begged for a place to hide. After the aide left the room, she locked herself inside the bathroom and refused to come out again until the nurse's aide identified herself and said that Cooley was not there. On March 11, 1961, Cooley tried to reach her by phone. For about 45 minutes, he only got a busy signal. Later, he questioned her about it, and he lied, saying that he was monitoring the call the whole time. She responded by saying, So what? Now you know. Of course, she was talking about the divorce and the money she was investing, but Cooley took it as if she was admitting the affairs she was having, both with Davenport and Jackson. Both men would later deny that they ever had sexual relationships with her. Now, Cooley believed these two men who lived together were homosexuals, yet he believed that at least Davenport was having sex with his wife. He called Davenport to say he was coming and that he was going to beat his teeth in and kill him. When they met, again Cooley lied and said that he had tape recordings of all Davenport's telephone calls to his wife. Cooley punched him in the chin and told him to get out of the state, otherwise he and LMA would be killed. Things like that went on for the rest of the month. Cooley accusing her, sometimes beating her, then sobering up and telling her how much he loved her. William S. Lewis, a private investigator, was hired to find evidence of LMA's infidelity. He began recording her phone conversations. On March 24th, it was announced in the paper that Spade Cooley was planning a divorce. LMA has moved out and I'm heartsick, Cooley told a reporter. There isn't a chance for reconciliation. And he was asking for custody of their two children. Less than 10 days later, on April 3, 1961, authorities were called to the ranch of the Cooleys to find LMA naked, beaten, and covered with a towel. 
she was rushed by ambulance to the Tehachapi Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. Interrogated by police, Cooley claimed his wife fell getting out of the shower. Then he went on a rant about her alleged infidelity. It didn't take long before he was arrested and booked on suspicion of murder. He was taken to the county jail in Bakersfield. Cooley couldn't explain why his hands were swollen and bruised, as he told a story of how the injuries came from LMA jumping from their moving car a few days before, and that how she fell in the shower the previous night. He did admit, however, that he slapped her once or twice. At his arraignment, the Associated Press reported that Cooley shuffled into court like a sleepwalker, and, as if in a daze, he failed to acknowledge the introduction of his defense attorney. Cooley stopped eating and collapsed in his jail cell a few days after he was formally charged with first-degree murder. He began having periodic chest pains and minor heart attacks, and the start of his trial was delayed a few months while he recovered in the hospital. Cooley pleaded not guilty due to insanity, but after being examined by three separate court-appointed lawyers, he was judged to be sane. The alleged murderer claimed to have no memory of what happened that night. At the trial, the couple's 14-year-old daughter, Melody, all the time on the verge of tears, told this story to the court. And this gets a little graphic. She said she arrived at home at 6.20 p.m. She said, When I entered, he was on the phone. He was talking to his business partner, and he said, Don't call the police. He was real sweaty and had blood spots on his pants. He put down the phone and said, Come in here. I want you to see your mother. She's going to tell you something. He took a hold of my arm and took me into the den. The shower was running in the bathroom. Mother was in the shower. He opened the door and said, Get up. Melody's here. Talk to her. He grabbed her by the hair and dragged her into the den with both hands. She was undressed. He banged her head on the floor. He called her a slut. She couldn't move. She was unconscious. He turned back to mother and said, We'll see if you're dead. Then he stomped her in the stomach with his left foot. He took a cigarette which he had been smoking and burned her twice. She went on to say how her father used a pistol to menace her with it, leaving the sights right between her eyes. He told her, You're going to watch me kill her, Melody. If you don't, I'll kill you too. I'll kill us all. She went on to say, when I went inside, I started crying. I knew it was going to happen because my father was always beating my mother. At one point, her father left the room, and she tried to revive her mother by pouring cold water on her head. I didn't know whether she was dead or dreaming, Melody said, because I could hear the rattling noise in her throat when she breathed. She was paralyzed with fear when her father returned. When the phone rang and Cooley went to answer it, she made a break for the door. The terrified teenager ran to get help. At about 8 p.m., Cooley's manager showed up and knew right away that Ella May was most likely dead. Cooley refused to let her call an ambulance. Instead, he called Dorothy Davis, a nurse and family friend, and his married son and daughter-in-law. Five hours after he assaulted the woman, and after everyone demanded that Cooley call for help, he finally called. As the bloody and beaten 37-year-old woman was being loaded onto a stretcher, the dazed and incoherent Cooley blubbered, I love you. Please don't be dead. Dr. Vincent Troy of the Tehachapi Hospital 
reported there were numerous marks of external violence noted on the body, consisting of bruises over the entire body, indicating the victim had been beaten severely. He also noted the numerous cigarette burns and trauma to her head, neck, chest, and genitals. She suffered vaginal and anal abuse. The cause of death was internal bleeding by a ruptured aorta, a result of punching and kicking. During the trial, Cooley told the story of a confession of her infidelity. Checking the motel where it was supposed to have occurred, there was no record of her being there, and Billy Lewis, a private investigator, concluded that it hadn't happened, and he could find no evidence that Ellie Mae had ever had an affair with anyone. A nurse to Ellie Mae said that Ellie Mae told her that she and Roy Rogers had become intimate while on a trip to Texas nearly ten years before, but the nurse said she did not believe this tale and that LMA was under emotional distress at the time, but she couldn't explain why the woman would lie about such a thing. Roy Rogers and his wife, Dale Evans, dismissed the allegation as ridiculous. When Cooley was brought to the stand, from most accounts, he told strange versions of his wife's death. It was an odd mixture of lies, fleeting moments of remorse, and lurid anecdotes. He claimed that she had confessed everything to him that night. He also said that she admitted that she had plans to join a sex cult. He went on to talk about the homosexual menace in America. Although at first he denied that he ever hit his wife. She went into the shower alone, he told the court. I didn't push her or shove her. There was a terrible thud. He said he ran to her but found her bloody and unconscious. He said, I rubbed her wrists breathed into her mouth, put cold towels on her head, and then I prayed. When the prosecutor asked why his own daughter would make up such a horrible story about witnessing the murder, Cooley calmly claimed that Melody was angry at him because he wouldn't let her date older boys. Later, however, Cooley changed his story, testifying, When Ella May told me what happened in that motel, to me it wasn't Ella May, it was an animal. It wasn't human at all. Then he said, I must have hurt her terrible. I must have hit her. Rockets ran through my brain when LMA told me of her desire to join a free love cult. In his closing arguments, the prosecutor described him as mentally ill, sadistic, with a cruel personality. He told the jury that Mr. Cooley is not normal and claimed that Cooley's ego was the real motive in the case. She doesn't get away with these things with Spade Cooley, he said. He's abnormal. He has sadistic tendencies as evidenced by the torture. The defense attorney began with writing the words acquittal on a blackboard, and he said, that's all I'm going to talk about. He claimed the prosecutor's speech was loaded with half lies. He said of the 14-year-old daughter's testimony, the tragedy in this case is that the district attorney has put a 14-year-old girl on the witness stand to convict her own father. I think Melody has a couple of axes to grind in this case. I would say that accusing a 14-year-old of lying about her father murdering her mother just because she was upset about not being able to date older boys is, well, a little extreme. Anyway... It took 19 hours of deliberation, but on August 19, 1961, a jury convicted Cooley of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. He was lucky to have escaped the gas chamber. 
Judge William A. Bradshaw said he took the defendant's poor health into consideration in opting against capital punishment. Too sick to be put to death, I guess. And he narrowly escaped spending his years in the walls of San Quentin, but instead, again, because of his physical and emotional state, served his time at the California State Prison. While he served his time, he was a model prisoner and did things like playing his fiddle with the prison band and even built fiddles in the hobby shop. He found religion and said that he wanted to become a Billy Graham-style preacher. By 1965, he began to finally show remorse for what he had done. He said in a prison news interview, I was wrong as any person can possibly be. There can be no excuse for beating anyone. Cooley had some powerful friends, including former actor and now elected governor of California, Ronald Reagan, who used his influence to get Cooley a parole, which was due to take effect on January 22, 1970, on his 60th birthday. It causes one to ask if serving nine years of a life sentence for beating a woman to death is just full punishment. A few months before his release, he was given a three-day pass to perform in Oakland at a benefit concert for the Alameda County Sheriff's Department. As he walked on stage, the man who brutally beat his wife to death received a huge applause from the audience of about 3,000. After playing three songs, he walked off stage to a standing ovation. He signed autographs and told reporters he was looking forward to returning to work, but was concerned about whether his fans would welcome him back. Sure they will, someone said, and Cooley smiled back. I think it's going to work out for me, he said. I have the feeling that today is the first day of the rest of my life. Suddenly the smile disappeared from his face. His fiddle fell to the floor. He clutched his chest. He fell. He was probably dead before he hit the ground. He suffered a massive heart attack. His son, Donald Jr., was by his side. His lawyer, a few days later, said, He was pretty happy when he went. He died on the streets and not in prison. The convicted murderer was 59 years old when he died. Before I go, first of all, thanks to Nancy Fry for suggesting today's story. I actually started the story about a month or so ago, and at the time it just seemed too depressing for me to do. Um, I had a lot going on, and I just thought I needed something a bit lighthearted. But now it seemed like it was the time to do it. Uh, it's just such a dark and depressing story. Anyway, thank you, Nancy, for suggesting it, and to all of you out there. I'm always looking for story ideas, so hey, send them my way. It's coffeewithjeff, all one word, at gmail.com. One part of the story I couldn't come up with any information was what became of their three children. The first one with his first wife and the two with Ella May. You would think later in life one of them would have done an interview or something and told their side of the story. I don't know, but... There's nothing that I could find, and I, I wonder what happened to his first wife. It's strange how quickly he has disappeared from the public consciousness, you know? How many people remember Spade Cooley today? I certainly have never heard of him, but then again, maybe it's just me. Anyway, how about the 
ending credits. You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. And if you want to help me out with the show of with the money it costs me to produce it, you can find a link to my Patreon page at my website. That's coffeewithjeff.com. And if you can't afford to chip in a few shekels, then tell your friends about the show or repost it on social media. That would be a big help. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. Just to say hi is okay. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Again, you can use any of these platforms for suggestions. The links to the sources I used to write today's episode can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to this at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And I want to throw a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with something fun. Yeah.